if there's any group in the world where I would imagine someone would not just pee all over a toilet seat and leave it like that, it would be this group. It would be Wisdom 2.0. Getting Discomfortable with Wisdom 2.0. Last month, I went to a meditation and mindfulness conference in San Francisco called Wisdom 2.0. It was the kind of conference where every stranger that you talk to is really warm and open and interesting, and they always put a hand on their chest when they're talking to you. That's how you know when you're talking to someone who really cares. They put their hand on their chest as they listen. The conference had a really interesting and eclectic mix of speakers. For example, one session had Buddhist Roshi Joan Halifax paired with author Michael Pollan talking about the resurgence of psychedelics. Another session featured a handful of survivors from the Parkland shooting, both students, teachers, and parents, and their experiences. Another session was with one of the original founders of Twitter and our collective disillusionment with the internet technologies like Twitter that we once thought were going to save the world, but now appear to be ruining it. Jack Cornfield was there, who I didn't know much about going into Wisdom 2.0, but I am now his biggest fan. Chelsea Handler did a session on discovering the power of therapy. Jay Shetty was there with his high-energy brand of inspiring social media content. And, of course, there was a lot of meditation throughout. It's interesting to meditate in such a large group. To be around a couple thousand other people while you're meditating is kind of a special experience. There's just a vibe at that conference among all the people that you just, you feel like you can kind of trust everyone, that you you know what everyone's about more or less, and that they're all people who mean well. (laughs) So it was with a lot of surprise that I went to the washroom one day and I opened a stall And the toilet seat was completely wet. And I was like, wow, this floor of the hotel where the conference was happening was entirely dedicated to Wisdom 2.0. And I was like, if there's any group in the world where I would imagine someone would not just pee all over a toilet seat and leave it like that, it would be this group. It would be Wisdom 2.0. Like every stranger I interacted with was just so open and friendly and nice and conscientious. It really was the opposite of a lonely experience. It really felt like you could just turn to anyone and they would immediately look you in the eyes and want to be there for you and talk to you and get to know you. It was that kind of environment. And so it just, I was so disillusioned to go into the washroom and see the toilet seat left completely wet. It was disgusting. And I got resentful and angry. I was like, I don't want to have to clean someone else's urine off a toilet seat. This, this of all places, I was like, I guess this crowd isn't as evolved as I thought they were. But then I thought to myself, there's always an explanation. I feel like I get angry in situations where I can't understand what the other person is doing. Well, why are they acting like this? Why are they driving like that? But more often than not, when you find out what the reason is, you're like, "Uh oh, okay. 
It's sort of a failure of imagination when someone is doing something that you find really annoying or that you find preposterous or crazy or that makes you really angry. It's almost always because you can't imagine why they would be doing it. But you're not them, so of course you can't imagine it. We're not psychic. So I've been reminding myself a lot lately, there's always a reason. And to me, it doesn't really matter if I know what the reason is or not. It's not really my place to decide if it's a good reason or a bad reason. Once I acknowledge that there is a reason, that it's not just craziness, it's not just (laughs) to annoy me, that there's always a reason for the behavior that bothers me, then I can kind of relax about it and be like, okay, well, maybe I'll never know what the reason is. But there is a reason. And for that person, it's a good enough reason. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this annoying thing. So that kind of just like makes me relax. So I looked at this toilet seat that was all wet and I said, you know what? There's a reason. Maybe this person has a disability and it's difficult for them or who knows. But I'm just I'm not going to judge them. Whatever their reason was, that's fine. So I got a handful of toilet paper. I cleaned the toilet seat myself and I went to the washroom. And afterwards, I stood up. And the auto flusher went off, and as it was flushing, it splattered a bunch of water, and that water collected on the toilet seat exactly as I had found the toilet at the beginning. And I was like, wow, what a perfect illustration that everything has a reason. Here I was getting angry, getting judgmental about the fact that I presumed someone had peed all over the seat and just left it that way because people are terrible, even at a meditation conference. And then I discovered that there really was a reason. And it was actually a perfectly understandable and blameless reason. This toilet was designed improperly or was too powerful or something, and it was splashing water onto the seat. It wasn't even urine. It was just water. I remember laughing in the bathroom stall and then being like, oops, (laughs) I don't want people to think I'm having too much fun in here. But it was really such a great lesson for me, illustrating this idea perfectly that there is a reason for everything. Just because you don't understand and it seems like there's no good reason for what someone is doing that is making you upset, it's the fact that you assume there is no good reason or you assume it should be obvious to you that is making you angry and annoyed in the first place. So I'm always trying to remind myself in those situations of judgment, frustration, and anger that there's always a reason. And it doesn't matter whether I get to know what that reason is. When I accept that there is a reason and it's a good reason for that person, that's all I need to know. Another really interesting encounter that happened was a meditation in pairs that Jack Cornfield led in the main lecture hall. So there's a few thousand people. I didn't know any of them. And he instructed us to find a partner. So I kind of looked around and there was a woman nearby. And the exercise was to sit face to face and stare at each other, but not say anything. This is so intense and uncomfortable. Staring at a complete stranger in such an intimate way, it's just really intimidating, really intimate, really personal, really invasive. It feels like you're really getting into someone's privacy and someone's space. 
But because we had both agreed to be a part of it, it was okay. And because it was so awkward, I felt all this pressure inside of me to smile, to kind of chuckle, to to make light of it or to move my face around. It was extremely hard to just stare blankly. I felt like, am I giving this person the support, the friendliness, the niceness that they need to feel comfortable? And then I was like, no, it's not about making this person comfortable. I have been instructed simply to stare at them, and that's what I'm going to do. I find that I put so much effort into making other people comfortable all the time that it creates sometimes a degree of inauthenticity. It's, it's not how I'm really feeling. I'm feeling kind of neutral. I find that when I meditate, my face actually goes into this really kind of corpse-like look. It just, it, all expression falls away. And it's not about looking poised or looking good or looking anything. It's like literally just letting my face completely drop as if I was asleep almost. And I don't think it's a very attractive look, but it's honest. It's neutral. I don't want to be meditating, worrying about whether someone else is looking at me and I look attractive or not. That completely takes away from the concept of meditation. So here I am staring at this woman blankly. She's staring back at me. And Jack Cornfield is giving us all of these prompts about how to take this person in, to look at them with love, to look at them with understanding, to look at them as if you know them. And then Jack instructed us to imagine this person as a child, to imagine the fun that they had, to imagine them running around full of joy, to imagine their, their ups and their downs and the, the sadness and the good times. And it was really quite powerful to imagine this adult woman as a child. It, it added a lot more empathy and connection. Even though she was a complete stranger and I didn't know her, I was like, it's true. We both had a childhood. And I can just imagine that even though there are probably a lot of differences in our lives, that there are these universal moments of childhood, you know, those moments of joy, the ups and the downs that we all experienced as children. And envisioning her going through that really humanized her for me. And I was like, what else do I need to know about this person to love them and connect with them and empathize with them? They're a human, and at one point they were a vulnerable child full of all the same mystery, magic, fear, and excitement that I was. And then Jack Cornfield instructed the group to imagine that the person you were looking at was in fact your own child. And I was surprised by how powerful that was. I don't have children, and I probably never will. So to suddenly imagine that this person who I had envisioned as this lovely child was in fact my child was really sort of shocking and emotional. And I was like, wow, so this is kind of a microcosm of what it feels like to look at someone and think, this is my child. That's something I had never done before. I had never looked at anyone and said, you are my child. That was a human experience that I never had and maybe never would have. And it was really shocking to think, am I missing out? Do I need to have a child just so that I can look at them and say, this is my child? just so I can experience what it's like to have that. I don't know if it's worth 
inventing an entire human being just so that I can have that experience. But it was really powerful just to imagine it. And it goes to show the incredible power that our brain has, that just given the right prompt and the, the, the right amount of imagination, you can experience something like having a child in a very small way, you know, without all the years of waking up and feeding them. <laughs> but nonetheless, you can use your imagination to look at a complete stranger and you really can get a human sense of their inner child. And then you can even use your imagination to imagine what if their inner child was my own child? What if I'm their parent? What would that mean? What would that be like? It made me realize that you could use this practice of meditation and envisioning and imagination to get a taste of what other people are experiencing, to get, a, to get a taste of lives that you've never lived, to get a taste of situations that you've never experienced. I wouldn't want to use this technique to say, oh, well, now I completely understand what it's like to be a woman, or, or now I completely understand what it's like to be a parent, or, you know, like, you, you can't take it too far. But if you're looking to empathize with someone who is very different than you, you could do an envisioning practice like this where you take on a different perspective and you find some kind of universal truth to connect with, you know, being human, being a child. And you, you go from that shared experience and then just extrapolate, just sort of envision it. Wow, so what would it be like to be this thing? What would it feel like? What would it entail in our culture? You could use this technique to understand groups that you just can't understand at all. You know, someone who's on the complete opposite end of the political spectrum from you. You could use this kind of envisioning meditation to take half an hour and just get a taste, get a glimpse of what life under that ideology might be like, what life in their culture might be like. And you might be surprised to discover that they have their reasons, that there are some very valid reasons for why they believe the things that they do which you disagree with, that they have some very valid reasons for their behavior which you can't understand and which you do not agree with. I think part of the key of accepting and tolerating other groups that we do not align with and that we might see as our antagonists is connected with this idea of there's always a reason. You know, it goes right back to that toilet seat. I could be super annoyed. Who would do this? Or I could step back and say, there's a reason. There's a reason. I think key to understanding and tolerating other people and other groups that you don't agree with is to acknowledge that there are valid reasons for why these people think and behave the way that they do. They're not just doing it because they're bad people. They're doing it for the same reasons that you do the things that you do, because you have these powerful, valid reasons as well. So the next time you find yourself really judging someone else for their behavior or their, or their beliefs 
because you just think it's totally crazy or wrong, take some time to do this exercise and imagine what could be a reason that would completely explain where this person is coming from. It doesn't necessarily have to be the actual reason. You may never get to find out what the actual reason is. But if you can come up with any reason that justifies their behavior, then you can no longer be angry at them. You can't justify being upset when you realize that this person has a valid reason. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with them, or you have to even agree with that reason, per se. But it would completely change the way you approach that person. Instead of thinking, how dare you do what you're doing? It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's wrong. It's bad. You would come with a lot more empathy. You'd be like, okay, I think I understand at least one scenario in which someone might act the way you're acting. So I understand that. And I want to work with your own belief system, work with your own rationale, work with your reasons to find what I think is a better way to approach and deal with this situation. 